Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Well, welcome back. My name is Jeff Smith, and I'll be your host. Thank you for joining us again here on the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And if you remember from last study, the study 001, we're going to call this lesson today, we're going to call this lesson number two. For those of you that have been with us for quite a while, you know that we didn't start recording these until about episode 16. And so we posted these intending them just to be available to our small group audience, but they've actually gone worldwide. And so what's happened is there's kind of a demand that's been created for these earlier lessons, the ones that we didn't actually record. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to go back. I'm pulling up my notes, and I'm trying to go back and re-record these lessons. And I mentioned in lesson number one, I don't normally do that. Typically, I go through life, I prepare a lesson for a particular date, and I never go back to it. I never pull it back up again. I never try to re-give that study. I'm not one of those people who has like four memorized sermons, and that's all I've got. No, every lesson I give, I intend to be given only once, but I do pour myself into it in preparation for it. And God has been gracious and allowed me time to be able to put in the amount of time it takes for me to put together one of these studies. So going back and redoing it, it's a little bit of a challenge for me. Like I said, this is new territory for me, but I want to fill in some of those gaps because I recognize who wants to start in chapter three of a book. So those of you that are joining us and that are waiting for these gaps to be filled, I thank you for your patience, and it is my intention to fill in all the gaps to go back and redo each of those studies to provide that full set, if you will, so that uh, you can also hear what I've got here, what studies that we had here in the group setting for chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. So last time, study number 001, that was serving as an introduction to the book of Genesis. Today we're actually going to get into the text, all right? But I'm not going to jump in immediately. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk a little bit more about the text as we're getting up to it. Some of the things you need to know about, though, for Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I consider Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, foundational, and I'm not alone in this regard, foundational to the entire chapter. All right, so verse 1 is foundational to all of chapter 1. And then Genesis chapter 1 is foundational to all of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And then Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is foundational to the entire book of Genesis, the 50 chapters of Genesis. And then the book of Genesis is foundational to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the Pentateuch is foundational to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament scriptures. And then the Old Testament of the Tanakh is foundational to the entire Bible. So I, I really do esteem Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 as being highly important. And again, I say this is not just from me. This comes from reading the Bible, and it comes from reading the commentaries, and it's easy to get that this is a big verse. It's an important verse, and so that's why I wanted to provide an entire lesson, lesson 1, kind of just to serve as an introduction to where we're going with this study. Uh, you remember from last week's study that we had lots of key figures 
that are coming right out of the Bible who took Genesis chapter 1, took the creation account, took the information that was found in the entire book of Genesis for granted that it was all true. They assumed, they took for granted that it was factual, that it was historical, these are real people, these are real places. All right, so we're building on that foundation. All right, this isn't myth. This isn't a novel that's based in fiction. All right, this is a real book, real people, real places, real times, real events. So they're jumping right into the text. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's been said that if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you can believe anything you run across in the Bible. But if you don't believe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where are you going to draw the line? You're not going to believe much of anything. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm using the New King James Version. It doesn't really matter what version you use. I mean, in general, I'm going to say that in general. In fact, the wording is identical whether you use the New King James Version, the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, the NLT, the CJB. Lots of these English translations have the same wording in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. When we're using different translations, you just got to realize different committees have different ideas of what they want to accomplish by providing a translation. Some of your translation committees, they want to go for what's sometimes described as a wooden translation. They want a very word-for-word -word approach as much as they can get away with without sacrificing essential meaning. All right, And then you've got the paraphrases on the other end of the spectrum going for meaning perhaps at the sacrificing the essential wording sometimes. So there's this whole gamut, this whole range of doing a translation. A committee's got to decide where are we going to try to hit in this range? Are we going to go for meaning? Are we going to go for word for word? Are we going to go somewhere in the middle? Most of them choose somewhere in the middle. So most of these translations are pretty much trying to accomplish the same thing, and that is trying to address, addressing the meaning without sacrifice the word for word if they can, all right? So there are some awkward places, and that provides translation committees opportunities for them to have variations in wording from one translation to another. And you've heard in these studies, a lot of times I'll actually solicit from the group, what does your translation say? Does anybody else have a translation that has a different word or a different phrase here for that? And so we do that. We do a comparison of the translations that are brought to the table when we have our small group studies. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of the, your translations that you would look at, the complete Jewish Bible has Bereshit, all right? Instead of the book of Genesis, or instead of the title of Genesis, the first book of the Bible they would call Bereshit. Bereshit is taken there, that name is taken from this introductory phrase, the introductory wording to this first verse, in the beginning, that's Bereshit. So that's how they get the name of the book of the Bible. It's a Hebrew word, and it just means in the beginning. So in Hebrew, this book is called In the Beginning. Which, if you think about it in English, Genesis is an archaic word or an older word that actually means the same thing. It means the beginning of something. All right, The genesis of something would be the beginning of something. So whether you're using English or you're using Hebrew, the name of this first book of the Bible comes from that idea that comes right out of the first few words of verse 1. And that means in the beginning. All right. So in the beginning here, Bereshit. Rashid is the word for beginning. Bereshit is in the beginning. And this is a generic or a general time statement, right? It's something before something else. So that's what we have here. Our author is trying to tell us that we're going way back. We're rewinding the tape, if you will. We're going back to the earliest time. Our author is trying to tell us, go back in time with me, and I'll tell you how it all happened. All right? So that's what we're seeing here. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The Hebrew word here for God is Elohim. 
Elohim is an interesting word because it's actually a word that's in the plural. But if you look at the translation into English, it's not plural. It's God. It's not gods. All right. I've seen one commentary that said that this is plural in form, but singular in meaning. And I'm not sure I really understand what that means, but I think I, I think I get it. Plural in form, but singular in meaning, this word Elohim. But that's really strange, though. Why would you have a word for God that's plural and then translated singularly? It's translated singularly because it's often associated with a definite article that's singular. And so when you run across this word, like I said, the definite article often tips you off. Hey, I'm going to treat this word as a non-plural. But the word ending itself, the him, Elohim, that im sound at the end of it indicates that it's a plural word. So now this conjures up the idea, what am I supposed to do with this? Is it a singular? Is it a plural? Is it God or is it God's? Is it Elohim God or is it Elohim God's? Is it singular or plural? I guess you can make an argument for yes. All right. Here's what I mean by that. How can we reconcile this word being a plural, this plurality, if you will, especially in light of a very famous passage? This famous passage is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going. And for you Bible students, you might recognize right away where I'm going to be going. This is the Shema. This is a very famous passage in Judaism especially, but in Christianity as well. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Singular. So it sounds like we should treat it as a singular. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the idea is that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has no rivals. There are no other gods. But sometimes you'll run across discussions that will have to do, or will even use the word gods, right? Not as if to actually acknowledge that there are any other gods, but they'll use it to make a point, or they'll use it to create an illustration. And actually, Elohim will sometimes be used in that form, to describe gods, little g, plural, all right? Gods, little g, plural. Why do I say little g? Because we recognize and we give God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one true God, a big g when we write it in English oftentimes, most of the time. So we'll write it with a big g. So if your idea of God, Elohim, is a plural, then I'd recommend just stay with us, go with us through the study, keep an open mind on that. But there's going to be interesting things that are going to come up as we go through the study. And today's study alone is going to have a lot of information along this line. In Christianity, there's a term that's often used to describe or try to reconcile this plurality and this singularity at the same time. The term that is used is trinity. A trinity is what? A trinity is three in one, or three at the same time, while one at the same time. And so in Christianity, the idea is that God is one made up of three. Three that make up one. All right? So three persons, one entity, one God. All right? Again, stick with us. Follow with us. If that's a little difficult to comprehend, you're, you're not alone. It's probably something that's going to be beyond any of us in this lifetime. But we're going to see more that's going to touch on that as we go. Next word, in the beginning, God created. The word for created in Hebrew is bara, all right? Created, bara. It's used 54 times in the authorized version, 42 of those meaning to create. Other ones, it can mean choose or to make or to cut down or dispatch or variations along those lines. But basically, it's a word that means create. 
And almost universally, your translations will have that English rendition for it, that English word create for bara. Now, there's something interesting about bara. It occurs 48 times in the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, as Judaism would call it. It occurs 48 times in the Old Testament, and it has some curious features. One of these features is that only God does bara. Nobody else does bara. The word bara is only associated with God. And then another thing that's curious about it is that the objects of bara, the things that are created, are often not associated with materials that are used to do the creating. All right. For example, bara, God, bara, people groups, Jerusalem, wind, fire, cloud, righteousness, purity, praise. These are just a few of the examples of those things that are created with God being the only one who is associated with this word bara, doing the creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens. The heavens. This is another word in Hebrew is plural. It's samayim. It's got that same word ending as Elohim. All right, so it's a plural. But it's interesting. Uh, most of your translations, most of the modern translations anyway, translate that as heavens, plural. But it's interesting to see the uh, King James Version, which has a date associated with it of 1611, that translation actually has it translated in the singular. You also have the New English translation of the Septuagint has it in the singular. But here we have the heavens, plural. And so that leads one to ask, well, what are the heavens? I mean, if we're to have a discussion, I was to mention heaven to you, you might have an idea in your mind of what that constitutes. But if I was to mention heavens, plural, to you, we might have to stop and take a moment there and consider what exactly does that mean? Another verse that might provide us some insight into this is from the Apostle Paul. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. And the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So Paul refers to a third heaven there in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, a third heaven. So that seems to suggest there's probably a first and a second heaven before you would get to a third heaven for consideration. So what could this be? A plurality of heavens, a third heaven? What are we talking about? So usually what ends up happening when there's discussion that you run across in the commentaries that have to do with this, there's this suggestion that seems to make some sense that the first heaven might be the clouds or the, the sky, if you will, of where birds fly and the clouds drift across. All right, That might be the first heaven. And the second heaven might be the stars, the abode of the stars and the planets. All right, And then the third heaven, the abode of God, if you will. So if we've got to uh, reconcile three heavens, this seems to be the most palatable explanation of the ones I have run across. Now, that's just a very simple generality, of course. We can have a discussion of where God dwells, but I'm just using it for this purpose to describe this word for heavens. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. No big discussion we need to have about the earth. I think we pretty much all know what we're talking about when we talk about the earth. We're talking about this planet that we're living on here. What I want to do now is I want to consider for a moment or lead us into a discussion about who made the heavens and the earth. And you're probably thinking to yourself, isn't it obvious? I mean, we just looked at it. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, it tells me in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when we ask who made the heavens and the earth, clearly Genesis says God created the heavens and the earth. But I want to look a little deeper. But first we got to lay some groundwork. In the Western way of thinking, the Old Testament, as we call it, is a collection of books that we would call sacred scripture. All right, Typically, it's described as consisting of 39 books, 
which we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament in the English way of thinking, the Western way of thinking, is broken up into four general categories, four general sections, four big sections, if you will, that have to do somewhat with genre, the type of writing. So our English Bibles and our Western way of thinking, the Old Testament scriptures, broken up into four big sections having to do with types of writings. And here's those types of writings. Law, history, poetry, and prophets. Law, history, poetry, and prophets. Those are our four big sections in our Western way of thinking of these Old Testament scriptures. Law, history, poetry, and prophets. Law would constitute the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then starting with Joshua, the next book of the Bible would lead into historical books. And then poetry you have with the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and even the book of Job included in those. Then you have the prophets, you have major prophets, minor prophets, you could break it down further that way. We're not doing that for right now. I'm just showing that there's four major sections that we, in our Western way of thinking, divide up the Old Testament, four genres, law, history, poetry, prophets, okay? The reason I make an emphasis on that is because now I'm going to introduce to you the Hebrew way of thinking of the what we would call the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh, all right? If you were to spell Tanakh in English, it'd be T-A-N-A-K-H, all right? But really, it's an acronym. It's made up of a T, an N, and a K. A T, an N, and a K. The T for Torah which would be the law. So they have law. They recognize law as a major genre of the Old Testament scriptures, of, of the Tanakh, the way that they would describe it. So they have law. We have law. Then they have the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im is Hebrew for prophets. All right. So they recognize prophets as well. So they have a second category, which corresponds with the category we recognize as prophets. And then they have the Ketuvim. All right. And you can hear these words Nevi'im and Ketuvim. They have plural endings. So Nevi'im, the prophets, Ketuvim is the writings. All right. T-N-K, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Torah, the law, Nevi'im, the prophets, Ketuvim, the writings, basically all the rest. All right. So the Hebrew way of thinking, the Old Testament scriptures, or what they would call the Tanakh, has three primary categories, three big genres, if you will. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, whereas the English Bible, or the Western way of thinking, would divide it into four, law, history, poetry, and prophets. All right? <laughs> Clear as mud? All right, let's move ahead. So what I want to do now is we're talking about who made the heavens and the earth. And we've already discussed that Genesis 1-1 makes it clear. It says that God made the heavens and the earth. And so God making the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, that's in the Torah. That's in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So it's recognized in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew way of thinking, in the Hebrew scriptures as being a representation of the Torah, of the law. And the English Bible, the Western way of thinking would say, yes, Genesis is part of that law section. Both would say the law tells us that God made the heavens and the earth. But I suppose somebody could make an objection and say, well, you know what, Genesis, I mean, I've heard people say that Genesis chapter 1 is just kind of poetry. It's describing how everything came to be, but really, that's not the way it really was. I mean, surely the rest of the Bible wouldn't support such a crazy idea that was originally described in poetic language in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Well, one of the things you need to realize is if you go to the world's greatest Hebraist, they will tell you that chapter 1 is not in the language of poetry. It's in the language of historical narrative, which suggests this is real. We're to take it at face value. All right? It's not poetry. 
Poetry would allow you to say, oh, I don't have to take this stuff seriously. I don't have to take it literally. But this isn't poetry in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's historical narrative. But anyway, an objection could be made. That's just Genesis, so we can dismiss it because, uh, you know, I heard somebody tell me one time that Genesis 1 was poetry. Well, you know what? Let's move into those other sections. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that might tell us who made the heavens and the earth? Let's look at the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter 38, verse 4. Now, Job is in the Ketuvim. He's not in the prophets. He's in the Ketuvim of the Hebrew way of thinking or the Hebrew way of dividing the Bible into those three big sections. But in the Western way of thinking, Job falls into the poetry section. All right, so Job, chapter 38, verse 4, God speaking here says, I laid the foundations of the earth. I laid the foundations of the earth. Let's look at another verse in another place. How about Psalms? Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27. Verse 25 in particular says this. The psalmist says of God, he says, You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. In Psalm 136, verses 6 through 9, the psalmist says of God, To him, that's God, to him who laid out the earth above the waters. In verse 7, who made great lights. Verse 8, the sun to rule by day. Verse 9, the moon and the stars to rule by night. Who is he talking of? He's talking about God. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens. And then another verse here in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 26, the Lord made the heavens. All right, why do I throw all these different verses at you? Well, here's why. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it's clear. God made the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That satisfies that requirement of the Western way of thinking and the Hebrew way of thinking being a representative verse saying that God made the heavens and the earth out of the law section, all right? When we look at that verse from Job, though, that verse from Job in the Western way of thinking is in the poetry section. In the Hebrew way of thinking, it's in the writings. And so that's another section where there's this voice that testifies that it is the Lord who laid the foundations of the earth. In these verses from Psalms, what do we have here? In the Western way of thinking, that's the poetry section. In the Hebrew way of thinking, that's the ketuvim, all right? In both of those passages of the Psalms, it's clear that God laid the foundations of the earth, that the heavens are the work of God's hands, that God laid the earth above the waters, that God made the great lights, that God made the sun to rule by day, that God made the moon and the stars to rule by night. Isaiah is from the prophets, both the Western way of thinking and the Hebrew way of thinking, from the section of the prophets, that it's God the Lord who created the heavens. And then in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 26, satisfying that history section of the Western way of thinking of the Old Testament, the Lord made the heavens. Synthesizing all of that then, pulling it all together, what do we have? Whether you're a Western way of thinking person or a Hebrew way of thinking person, it is God who made the heavens and the earth. Every single major section of the Old Testament, every single major section of the Tanakh satisfies the requirements saying that it is God who made the heavens and the earth. You can't just put Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 in a box and shove it to the side and say that's an aberration. The rest of the Bible wouldn't support that. As you entertain ideas of what? An alternative like what? The theory of evolution? If you're going to believe what the Bible teaches, the Bible does not teach a theory of evolution, nor does it teach something that is compatible with the theory of evolution. 
The Bible clearly teaches that it is God the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, and it's testified to by every single major section of the Old Testament scriptures, whether you think of it in the Western way of thinking or the Hebrew way of thinking, whether you call it the Old Testament, whether you call it the Tanakh. And you say, but Jeff, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. I mean, we live in a day and age where we believe the New Testament. All right, if you're in that group, you believe in the New Testament. All right, let's talk about the New Testament. I do, by the way. <laughs> I believe in the New Testament. But if you're, if you're going to talk that way about the New Testament, what do you divide the New Testament into? You divide the New Testament into four major sections. You've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got history, all right, which includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also the book of Acts. And then you've got the epistles. Those are the letters written by an apostle, all right? Most of the New Testament falls into the epistles category. And then apocalyptic, that's the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, all right? So you've got four major sections. You know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> Here we go. Mark from the Gospels. From Mark chapter 13, verse 19, the creation which God created. In Acts chapter 14, verse 15, this is the historical section, the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, again from the history section, God who made the world and everything in it. How about Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12? This is among the epistles. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the apocalyptic section for you, this is Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, says, For you, speaking of God, the one that's on the throne, the creator of heaven and earth, says, For you created all things. So here we have, what do we have? We have all major sections of the New Testament speaking about God being the creator of the heavens and the earth. The teaching of the Bible is that there is a God in heaven. He's a one supreme God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And every major section of the Bible, Old Testament and New, all of the major sections of the Holy Scriptures teach that we are here in this place that we live, this planet we call Earth is here because of the creative work of this master creator, that he created the heavens and that he created the earth. Well, it looks like that's all we're going to have time for today. Please join us in our next episode for the rest of this two-part study. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <laughs>